Welcome to the Band of Brothers podcast. Today's date is February the 14th. It's Valentine's Day. Yoo-hoo! I hope you haven't forgotten your uh, special occasion thing. Uh, anyhow, uh, this week we are in week 18 of the Quest for Authentic Manhood, and we are being led by Don Munton again in part two of A Biblical Definition of Manhood. Thanks for joining us. questionnaire there that I think will help you tremendously in terms of it says uh, section 18 at the top of it, the leadership questionnaire in light of Adam and Christ. And so when we complete this, again, this would be, I think, a big help uh, maybe uh, as you head off to Starbucks on Saturday morning working on your manhood plan and you're sitting there and uh, you're kind of working through that. I think if you go through this, this will give you some templates. It will give you some ideas and maybe here's some areas I'm doing well on. Here's some areas I need to, to strengthen in. Here's some areas that I'm not sure about. I need to ask some questions on that. And so it's great to have uh, your wife come and share. Um, I uh, did a, a program called Rules of a Man back 18 years ago. In fact, uh, Roger uh, Bridgewater and then Mark Kohler, when I came here 10 years ago, um, I said, I'd like to do this course called Rules of a Man. And they said... Uh, Wow, that was the most impactful uh, material that we've ever done to practically know how to take the next step, what, what to do in regards to our roles as men. We kind of had this vague idea out here in terms of what, our, what we're supposed to do, but we're not quite sure. We have some ideas in terms of maybe some things. We've done some stuff, stuff and some of the things have worked out well, some have not worked out well. And so, uh, but that was the number one uh, group, uh, bit of material that we kind of saw together that helped us understand what we're supposed to do. And so... Um, I'm not sure, Travis, what was the date that you gave there? Yes, the first, first Wednesday in March, we will have uh, a series, and Eric and I will do those series, and it'll be five weeks, and so we'll give just practical information on how you can walk this out. And there'll be two places that you can put this to practice immediately. One is you say, well, I'd like to make sure this happened at home. Uh, but one of the places you have uh, that is a safe um, environment, a place in which you can start kind of putting this to practice before you put into the crucible of home, is you can put this uh, in practice at church. And so in the body of Christ, in the family of God, you put this to practice. And you're given a little bit more freedom because the people don't know you quite as well as they will at home. There's a little bit of freedom because there's some room in which you can kind of touch and you can walk away from it. Whereas at home, that intensity is there all the time. You have to walk home. You have to go to bed. You have to you know, engage with those things most likely. And so as a role of man, one of the things that we'll learn is that this is not a role of a husband or role of a father, it is a role of a man. So all of us as men have these responsibilities that are placed on us. Whether we take advantage of those responsibilities or not is really up to us. Whether we, we use them in a good way, or whether we use them for evil uh, is up to us. And we get that, that, that volition, that decision that we have to make on a regular basis. And so uh, let's turn back now to page uh, 60, and we will uh, continue on Biblical man, Definition of Manhood, Part 2. I'm going to share a story with you. And um, this is, um, I have a couple of men in my life who, well, quite a few over the years, who I would say are unbelievable in regards to uh, not just the idea of, um, I feel like there's some things wrong in my life. I feel like I've done some stuff or some things have been done to me, and I must get that back. So as we look this morning, what we need to say is, hey, let me, God, do something in my heart and life. Let me say another way. You may feel like you've had your manhood given to you. You may have had some coaches in your life. You may have some dads in your life like I did. You may have had some ministers in your life who have spoken truth into your life. You may feel like you've made it. Let me tell you, the first thing you do is you grab another man and you do the same thing with them. You let them know and say, hey, let me tell you what God has done in my heart and life. 
Let me tell you how God can do that in your heart and life. And then you become the man who spreads manhood to someone else. And you help them grow up and to be that. I think the way of the men at First Baptist is the way of First Baptist. I honestly believe that. I'm not saying anything down against the ladies when I say that. But I think the men, when we step forward courageously as men, as we walk forward, as we do it honorably, if we do it nobly, I think the way of the men is the way of First Baptist. I've heard some unbelievably good news from you guys here. That most of you are already working on your manhood plan. Some of you already finished your manhood plan. Let me tell you, finish. Don't start. Don't go partway through. Don't just know it's up on, the, up on the shelf, men. Don't just look up there. Don't just know what has happened in the past and unpacked. But take that jar down and say, you know what, God? If you could so restore something to me that I have lost, if you could do that, I'd be so thankful to you, Father. Would you transform my heart and would you restore that? Let me turn it back on. I didn't want that on podcast. And so we've been looking at two, uh, four uh, defining differences between Adam and, and, and Christ. There are two gigantic uh, mountaintop men within Scripture. One is the Adam of the Old Testament, and one is the Adam of the New Testament, Jesus Christ. There are two people that step forward okay, in, in, without in Scripture. You see one step forward, and he doesn't step forward well. You see another one step forward, and he steps forward unbelievable. You see one man step forward, and he looks like a man, but he really is a boy. You see another one step forward, and he looks like he came as a baby, but he really becomes as a man. And so you see these two men in, in Scripture. So we're going to compare these two, and then from that we're going to get a, a, a comparison or a definition of manhood. And so we're going to look at, this morning, these two great men. The first Adam fell into passivity. We see in Scripture that, that Adam was right there by her. When, the, when Eve took the fruit, you say, where was Adam? Well, he was checking it out. He said, hey, if something bad happens to her, hmm, I'll figure that out now. Then I can blame it on her. If something good happens, then I can get credit for it, and I can take the fruit too, and I can make something good. But Adam fell into passivity, the first Adam. The second Adam rejected this passivity. Jesus stepped forward. He said, I will. Father, this is your will. I will do those things. The first Adam disregarded his responsibilities, but the second Adam accepted responsibilities. The first Adam rejected responsibilities, the second one accepted him. You recall the last week we talked about these defining differences. Remember that we saw the first Adam fell into passivity, and the second one rejected passivity. The first Adam was caught with manhood pants down. How was he caught? He was just standing there. There was a moment in which he could have taken a step forward, but he became like the invisible man. Maybe when you walk home, You've been busy all day. You've been working. And when you walk home, you walk into your house and you feel like you suddenly become invisible. You suddenly realize that you've been sitting in your chair for a long time, having everybody come to serve you. And you realize that you've not been making decisions. You've not been thinking clearly. You've been aggressive. You've been, making, you've been in competition at work. And then when you come home, when you come to church, suddenly you take a back seat and you become the invisible man. It has been true since Adam that often we start unwinding at home with our wives and with our children. When the communication starts up on spiritual things, when things of the soul start to be spoken, just like Adam, we disappear. We're there, but we're really not there. It's just like the garden experience. So what is so odd about our particular moment was that a man entered into the enemy. Uh, let, me, let me put it this way. Men, we must reject passivity. We must reject silence. We must je- reject uninvolvement. We must reject being removed and quiet. If you are a quiet man, maybe the most important thing you can do is just speak. If you are a talkative man, maybe one of the best things you can do is just listen. 
You take what your tendencies are and you say, wait a second, am I pushing my family? Am I getting uninvolved? I, I loved the way you said it, ma'am. And they said that at home, one of the most important things we can do is create the atmosphere. When my dad walked home, mom could be yelling at us all day long, chasing us with a fly swatter. You boys, those four of us mutton boys, you boys, you better stop that. When dad would walk in, the house got quiet. Suddenly it was, my, my mom would get mad. She says, how do you do that? And uh, he goes, I don't know. And he goes, when, when, all day long I've been running and fussing with these kids, and now when I walk home, you just come in the door, and suddenly they're, just, they're good. What happens? And he says, I don't, I don't know. I, but we knew in our hearts, us boys, that we could test mom as much as we wanted, but we knew we did, sure didn't test dad. We knew that we, uh, in a sense, this is my dad said it when he, sometimes when he spanked you. He said, you may treat your mom that way, and that may be wrong or may be right, but you may treat your mom that way. Let me tell you, you will not treat my wife that way. And so you're getting spanking right now because I hope you will change how you treat your mom. But right now, you will not treat my wife that way. It made total sense. It was like, yeah, that makes sense. So as in my family, you may treat your mom that way, but let me tell you, kids, you will not treat my wife that way. She's my bride. She's my queen. She's the one in charge. She's the one who sits in the front seat. Kids, I love you, but I want to teach you how to be a queen. I want to teach you how to be a king. I want to teach you how to do it, and I want you to watch it. I want you to see it, not just know about it, not just information. And so don't catch yourself just standing there. Jesus was a man, though, of initiative, wasn't he? You look at everything that Jesus did, and he steps forward. You look at the man of Jesus and the man of the purpose. He's a man that stands up and says, I will be counted. I'll be the one you can count upon. And so he looks forward. So the first Adam fell into passivity. The second Adam rejects passivity. The first Adam takes life and is a boy. The second man, Jesus, gives life and is a man. Do you give when you get home? Do people get more from you? Or do you have to, they have to give to you? Do they, do they receive from your life? Do they feel like they've been better off by being around you? Or do they feel worse off from being around you? Second defining characteristic is seen in the first Adam as his disregard his responsibilities. The first Adam disregarded his responsibility, but the second Adam, Jesus, accepted responsibility. Roy Smith says it this way, the ability to accept responsibility is always the measure of the man. How you accept responsibilities. Let me tell you, one of the greatest deals you can do in your life is say, no, we will not do that. Is to say no in your life. Some of you men have the ability to say yes to everything, and then by doing that, you take too many things on. And by doing that, you cannot be responsible for any of those things. You've, you're overloaded. So some of you need to take responsibility and say, no, that's too many sports items. No, you cannot do five sports right now, honey. No, you cannot do those many things. No, our family's not going to go chaos and on Saturday be at five different things. And so you say, no, our family, you choose one of those things. You make them choose. But you take the responsibility. Now, there's several things when we take about responsibility, and, and three specific that come out, I think, loud and clear in, this, in these passages. You can see it again throughout Scripture. In fact, Rolls of Man will talk about these three and, and one more. But one is it. He accepts responsibility for a will to obey. For a will to obey. Now, this, hopefully you got your Bibles with this. You have, I think, some of these verses in your, right there in your notes. But if you would, we're going to look through the Bible. So get your Bible ready here. Because he accepted the responsibility to obey. The first Adam forsook the will of God. He's in search of something better for himself and for his wife. The Adam didn't trust God, the first Adam. The second Adam trusted God completely. And he obeyed God's will. Here's the question that we need to ask our lives. God, what is your will? And stop. 
God, what is your will? And stop. Not what is your will for me and make it selfish. Turn it back into my question. God, what is your will? And you stop there. And then that point you say, God, can I help you? Can I be a part of accomplishing your will? Then we're, now we're Christ-centered, not me-centered. God, what is your will for me takes a great question and makes it a secondary question. It makes it a first Adam question. John 4.34 says this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, is what Jesus said, and to accomplish his will, his work. So Jesus very clearly says that his will, his work, is to do the will of the Father. Psalms 48, 40, verse 8, says this, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. At a critical moment in Jesus' life, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when his manhood is at the superior test, when it's being tested beyond anything else, at that point in time, he says this, and he went a little beyond them, and fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, For Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt, as your will would be. Matthew twenty six thirty nine. You see, what you're hearing, guys, is a manhood, because real manhood accepts the responsibility to obey the will greater than himself. You are not the end all. When you go into your, ha- your family, the greatest and tallest you'll ever be is when you get on your knees before your great God and you say, God, I am yours. When you do that, a wife can trust you. When you do that, family will rely upon you. When you get on your knees, you will never look so tall because what you've just said is, I'm not in charge, but the God of this universe who's created it all is in charge of all this, and I will rely upon him. So if I'm not right on this, I'm going to be talking to him. Say, God, would you help me with this? I don't think I'm doing this right. Can you give me direction on this? Secondly, Jesus accepted a work to be done, a work to do. He accepted responsibility for a will to, to obey, for a work to do. He understood that he was a man under this authority. He's a man under authority. When you understand you're a man under authority, when you go home, then at that point, I think life changes. John 17, 4 says, I glorify thee on earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And finally, and thirdly, just like Adam, he had a woman to love. See, Jesus accepted responsibility for will to obey, for work to do, and for a woman to love. You might say, well, wait a second, Jesus wasn't married. How does that work? Well, he did. Let's look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her Back to the point and since the whole idea of that passage is he died for her. Okay? And here's how he loved his, his woman. He gave his life for her. He was a life giver everywhere he went. Now, at this point, I need to take a, a segue just for a second and make sure we remind ourselves again. I'm not talking about just a woman to love. I think when you look at the idea of, of uh, marriage, you see a template, a greatest, a, in a sense, a, a mountaintop picture. And, but at the same time, all the women underneath that are still we're held responsible for, okay? So at the, the point in which I would say, um, got to say this right, single men, uh, this applies to you 100%. Um, if you do, are not married and you don't have any prospects, okay, at this point, then your job is to love women. In fact, uh, I don't I don't have this passage for me. Someone go to First uh, Timothy five two. 
and somebody read that for me out loud, 5-2. Uh, the, the idea is that we would then love women, we'd be responsible for women, even before marriage, that we'd be take, take care of ladies uh, at this point in time. And so the idea of having a wait until marriage to do this is not true at all. Somebody read that passage. First um, Timothy 5, you can start on verse 1, 1 and 2. Yeah, no, that's right on. Younger, see, you hear that verse, guys? The, the verse is, is that we treat younger women as sisters in all purity. Here's what that picture is. The picture of purity is taking a clay pot, literally, and holding it up to the sun and seeing if there's any cracks in it. Okay? It's to say that when I pour my olive oil into it, my valuable commodity into it, I don't want it leaching out and being lost. So when we pour, in a sense, our lives into the ladies, we want them to be in a whole and pure and without blemish, is a term that it uses. The idea is that as we look up, we don't want to look up and be crackpots. Okay? We treat ladies right. We treat ladies as sisters. You don't do things that maybe some of us men have done to our sisters. It'd be gross. It'd be wrong. We don't treat women as objects. We treat them with good dignity. We lift them up and say, are they pure? Have we done them right with them? And so we do that with all women, with all people. And so men, at the core of a masculine life is a man who understands that there is a higher will than his will. There is a higher will than your will. We are to take these ladies, we are to take these ladies at HFBC, and we are not to abuse them, we are not to use them, we are not to take advantage of them, but we are to love them, and give them life. I guarantee what you will get in return will blow you away. Oh, by the way, it is Valentine's Day. Just a reminder for myself and for all of us, it's Valentine's Day. Now, some people call this Amateur Day, and because everybody does it, you know. So you really, some of you go ahead and t- celebrate Valentine's Day today, and really the wise man also takes care of the 15th of February and the 16th of February and the 17th. Just go ahead and, and spread this out just a little bit, you, you know. Just take care of it because that's when the real, uh, you know, uh, professionals take care of Valentine's Day. They take care of the amateur day, but they take care of all those days too. You write a, a note on the 15th of February on your wife. Oh, there was a great Valentine's. Thanks for uh, loving me. You write a note on, on her window, on her mirror when she gets up in the morning. You have a, a, a phone message for her to pick up when she gets back on the 15th, and you'll be unbelievable. She'll celebrate that. She'll think, wow, because you've given her life. You've given her, and she will reward you in a way that you thought, that is unbelievable. I cannot believe that she would do those things. She'd serve a family like that. She'd be engaged with me in that, in that capacity. But as you love her, you'll get unbelievable reward in return. John F. Key says this, Jeff Key says this, we choose to go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Let me say it this way. The second Adam, what he is asking us to do is not easy. In fact, it is hard. What I'm talking about right here is impossible in some ways for us to do. In fact, it is something that is incredibly hard. The word that you can take behind that is you put the word honor. You put the word noble. In fact, the word noble has this idea of connotation of, of strength, of hardness, of difficulty is the word noble. And that we stand against difficulties and we say we stand in the gap of those things. We stand in the way of those things. And so we become noble in the front of those things. And so we take responsibility. Look at slide, the next slide here. The question I think we're asking is, why does America miss us today? 
how can our young men, how can our, our kids learn these and accept these social responsibilities? Let's look at a couple of things. When it's clear from a young age the primary responsibility for social and spiritual well-being of others, namely a wife and children and your church and your society, rest on you as men, rest on him. When that is given as a young man, then he has something to shoot for. But if we don't give that to our young men, if we let our young men not grow up and let them have protracted adolescence, if we don't let them grow up on this stuff, don't give them responsibility for this, then at that point they have no vision for anything greater. When he is trained from an early age by men in his life to recognize and assume the responsibilities. Recognize and assume it. Here's what I, here's what I expect. Okay? I expect you'll take this material, and you've been droggy this morning maybe a little bit, that you'll noon today, that you'll take this material and you'll look back over it again. There'll be a discussion that goes on here right after we get done here that you'll try to talk this through a little bit. But at noon today, maybe you'll even grab another guy and say, hey, I've been learning this material. I'm kind of working through it. I've got some questions to ask of you. Here's how this has been hitting me. And you talk through that and you work through that. That You'll take that with maybe an accountability partner and you'll have a discussion with them and you'll say, hey, you know what? I'm struggling in this area. Or maybe you'll be brave enough to take your wife and say, hey, how am I doing in this area? How am I doing here? And without defending it, you let her say, Here's how you're doing. Let your wife come up and give testimony of what's going on in your life and your family. So oftentimes, what we do is we become takers, right? Look at our inner cities. Look at our, look at our, our culture around us. And what we have is a culture of taking, takers, of boys. They look like men, but what they do is they go into society and they take from. The woman's supposed to serve me. Society's supposed to serve me. I've been doing all these things. What can I get from this situation? And the opposite is supposed to be true. Secondly, I think when we train people, young men from a young age, or whenever you hear this, maybe even today, when he is honored, especially by other men, for accepting the responsibility, when, when a guy steps forward and takes responsibility, we as his men and his friends should celebrate that. Great job. That away. Exactly right. When he steps up into a leadership role within your Bible study class, celebrate that. When he opens the door for a lady, you say, that's exactly right. When you see a young man mowing his lawn for his family, you say, you know what, that's exactly what a man should do. When you see a young a, a father training his son how to, how to use a hammer and how to be involved and engaged in his world, then you tell him, say, you know what, that is noble. That is tremendous. When we honor the men who are taking the responsibility and accepting responsibilities, it helps us all as men, doesn't it? When he has been spiritually transformed in his heart by Jesus Christ to desire these things and responsibilities, in order to honor God. When, when, hey guys, we sometimes think we have to be Greg Motts or we have to be uh, a vocational ministry or we have to be in some kind of a special role before this happens for us. But let me tell you, one of the most honorable guys, the most guy that I think is, is above all, all of you guys, I think you're great. Let me tell you a guy who I think is way above you, and that's my dad. My dad is unbelievable. He's a... Um, 80 years old this year. We're going to spend a week with him here in a few, a few weeks, about a month. We're going to spend a, a week with him. And all of his boys go out and shoot guns and eat grub and just be boys and, and men together. Well, my dad uh, is not a guy who uh, you would in any way uh, would lift up. My dad is the salt of this earth. When my dad sets things up. He says, men, here's, I, I say, here, did I tell you about, the, about his Bible study class last week? Tell you about that? Uh, my dad uh, would uh, go to these small churches, another example, would go to these small churches, and a lot of these churches were 25 to 40 people. He'd become their pastor. They couldn't afford a full-time minister. 
My dad was a boilermaker, so yes, I am a son of a boilermaker. And so uh, the, uh, he was a boilermaker. And as this boilermaker guy, he was a hard life. You know, a couple things about boilermakers. They, they're not called a dream, drink named after him and the football team named after him. They're rough guys. When anybody in those, those places would have tough times, you know who they'd call? Preacher. They'd call dad. When I walked in as a young boy, uh, they were all cussing and, and uh, cursing and, and just being, talking about what they were doing. When my dad walked in without saying a word, they stopped all their foul language. They stopped all what they were talking about. The preacher was there. Dad was there. When he walked in, he would take these small churches of 25, 50 people who could not afford a full-time minister. He'd walk in and say, I'll be your pastor. He would take the money they gave him to be a pastor. he put that into a bank account. And for the years that he was there, three years, four years, five years, every church that he had would grow. Not because of his preaching, I can tell you that. Not because of that, but because he loved the people. You could count on Eldon Mutton. And so he put that money aside. And when he left, he said, oh, yeah, by the way, here's an account that you can help get yourself a full-time minister to. So all that money that he made, he put that aside and said, here's money, seed money, for you to get a full-time minister. Now, my dad gave to the church, not because he was trying to get from the church, but because he was giving to the church. And he understood giving is so much greater than anything he could have got. So, guys, when we take these responsibilities and we live for something greater, there's a noble cause. There's something that is tremendous that we live for. What causes a man to accept social responsibilities? I think the final one is when he has been spiritually transformed in his heart by Jesus Christ to desire these and responsible in order to have a, um, in a order to honor God. You can't be told this, guys. I can't stand here and make it happen for you. I can't do it. I wish I could. The only way this can happen is you've got to be trained. You have to put it to practice. You have to do these things. One of the greatest things you'll do is talking around your tables. Critically important. But if you stop at your tables and don't take it on to work, if you stop it at work and don't take it on to home, if you stop it at any place, if you stop that, then you're going to miss out on the training opportunity of it. Let me talk about this one last thing about being transformed by Jesus Christ. Jesus does not want to give you just some nice characteristics, men. He does not want to give you a dose of peace, a dose of kindness, a, go- a dose of good work habits. He wants to not give you a dose of characteristics. Okay? He doesn't want to make you just a noble, give you a dose of nobility. What he wants to do is give his very self to you. We call that in Scripture transformation. He wants to change you from the inside out. He does not give you more knowledge. He wants to change you. You do not, it, it, Pastor Greg threw the cup up in the air, and when the classman, he's not trying to fix your old glass that is shattered on the ground. He wants to give you a brand new glass. He wants you to be a brand new person. Some of you have been saved, but have not lived transformational. Some of you know Jesus, but have not walked with Jesus. Some of you have trusted Jesus, but are not trusting him now. You must live this life, must be lived transformational, not informational. This is not something you know about. This is something you are or you aren't. Does that make sense? And so Jesus must be in the midst of all this to make that change. The second Adam, the first Adam, abandoned his post of leadership. The second Adam chose to lead courageously. The first one abandoned his post of leadership. The second Adam chose to lead courageously. Men, you were created to lead, but it takes courage. In fact, if you don't lead, what will happen to some degree is you will disengage from whatever you're not leading. What will happen is if you're going to church and you're in attendance only, eventually you'll say, what's church for? Eventually what will happen, passivity will take over. 
If you go to church, your responsibility is to get involved. I'm not saying run the church. I'm simply take your part of that and get involved. If leaders don't lead, they leave. They just do. Guys, if you are feeling like, man, I don't know if I should be at this church or not. I don't know. Let me tell you how you can get involved. Just start getting involved. Start your Bible study class. Just right there. Then maybe there's this uh, hard hat deal that we just kind of had. Jump involved with it. You may not do a ton of stuff. Just get involved. Start leading. Start being involved. See, Jesus led where, G- where Adam didn't. Jesus led where Adam didn't. He set direction. He provided protection. He made provision. See, when we lead by getting and setting direction, at that point, here's how Jesus said that. He gave direction by saying the number one most quoted thing in Scripture by Jesus, most repeated words in Scripture by Jesus are this, follow me. Number one most stated statement by Jesus, follow me. Men, you hear it? Are you, are you worth following? Are you leading nobly? Are you going where somebody else should go? Then as you do those things, as you follow that, I go, I have a dad who led me nobly. And so I follow and I say, man, I want to be like that. I want to be a man you can count on. I want to be men that men are inspired by because of his faithfulness. Are you protecting? A good shepherd sets the atmosphere. He protects, he provides protection for the, for the flock. When people come around you, are you stable? Are you creating a right kind of atmosphere? Can they count on you? Are you bringing people in? I call it the Mark Simmons principle. He's six foot eight. He woke up on uh, New Year's Day. He said, this is not where I meant to be. I'd gotten saved in college. I find myself here. And the six foot eight guy walks and says, I know that I need to do something different. So he walked into church. Now, two months before that, we started praying in the Sunday school class for men to come in. A bunch of them had gotten married, just like many of you have left me and are no longer with me in Summit. But uh, anyway, I digress. But the, uh, I'm a singles minister, and as a singles minister, oftentimes I lose all my good help because they want to get married and they want to leave and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, uh, this guy, Mark Simmons, walks in. Two months before that, we'd had a discussion. Steve Murray's on staff here. He said, we need to pray for men. So we started praying for men to come into the class, either for God to raise up men right there or bring class people in. Mark Simmons walks in. Mark Simmons is an alcoholic. Mark Simmons has found himself in a place he doesn't want to be. Mark Simmons realized that when he was a college guy, he knew he'd gotten saved, and he knew he wasn't living that way. So he said, I'll go to church. So he walks in, six foot eight, can't be missed, sitting at a table. Hmm, that's neat. Mark Simmons sits there and goes, you know what? Oh, this is a good church. You know what? I'm supposed to be here. But I'm not going to just sit here. I know that I'm really going to grow fast and I need to get involved. And nobody wants an alcoholic involved. Nobody wants somebody who's been where I've been involved. But you know what? I can be friendly. I work at CarMax and I know how to be friendly. So I'm going to be friendly at this class. So Mark Simmons, the next Sunday, walks through the front of the doors and starts meeting people as he walks in. He shakes their hand, finds out their name, finds out where they work. Now, little did anyone know that Mark Simmons is writing over here after he got their names. He writes all their names down and writes where they work. All week long, he prays for those people, looks at that the next Sunday. Hey, Mark, good to see you. Hey, Bob, good to see you. Hey, Bill, good to see you. He knows everybody's name. Hey, President, I just met you last week. Most of us can't remember the name after six weeks, after six months, and now we're embarrassed to even ask the name anymore. And so he knows all their names. He says, how's it going at whatever where they've worked? And so suddenly they know he knows their name, he knows where they work. This class absolutely was transformed. This class that was going kind of down suddenly was picked up. Here this guy, six foot eight, sticking out his big old paw and say, hey, I'm Mark Simmons, what's your name? Hey, Bob, good to see you from last week. How's it been going this week? Hey, I've been praying for you. Suddenly this class transformed. It goes from being a class of shrinking at 40 and going down to 30. Suddenly it's a class of 60, 70, 80. They've got to get more tables. They've got to figure out how to get people in there. 
just because a guy got involved in the way he needed to get involved and started loving people there. And so he started protecting and creating an atmosphere that we know you, we know your name, where you're from. Also, you must provide provision. Provision is not just financial goods, guys. It's being there. It's being engaged and involved. You see, must do that. Lastly, to be a courageous leader, every man's got to master one obstacle in his life. If you're going to be a leader, you have to overcome something. It's the enemy number one of us as men. Now, we don't necessarily know this. It doesn't see this out loud sometimes, but it is absolutely uh, what destroys us. It's your feelings. First, Adam abandoned... The first uh, Adam abandoned his post of leadership. The second Adam chose to lead courageously. To be a courageous leader, every man must master one significant obstacle, that's his feelings. Here's, let, me go, let me go into a deal. There's a, a new... Uh, you've heard IQ? It kind of measures your intellectual quota. But there's another one, EQ, that they think is more valuable. It's your emotional quota. It's what you can handle emotionally. We're finding out that not what you, how smart you are matters, how good a worker you are. It's not how, how smart you know necessarily that determines whether or not you're going to be successful at work. It's your ability to handle emotions. As a baseball player in college, I realize this is critically true, uh, important. If I can control how I feel about what's going on at the plate, I'm a much more successful hitter than if I cannot control. If I can control how the other team feels, I can control how they're going to do than if they, I can't control that. You see what I mean? At home, oftentimes, what happens is this emotional quota is we think we're the ones who need to receive again. But we're the ones who are supposed to create this atmosphere that, that in a sense, establishes it. You're not smart just because you have uh, you got a grade on anybody anybody been asked what your GPA was? I have never in my life gone to a job and been asked my GPA. Never have been asked. You've been asked? Uh, yeah, maybe some of you have. I have never been asked what my GPA was. Never been asked. But you know what? Every job that I've gotten, I've received because someone knew me, and because they knew me, they said, "Hey, we think Don would be good here." In fact, every job that I received is higher than my education. I don't think it's because of brains. I think they look and they say, there's a guy being tr that's trusting God, and there's potential in that. That guy is trusting his emotions to God, is trusting that, and there's potential with that. If, there is a, uh, if people are not trusting you, it possibly is because you're letting your emotions run the show. If people aren't giving you promotion, it might be your emotions are out of control. And so there's a lot of things that I think you, need, you can look further into that. Uh, Psalms 25.8 uh, says this, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. You have no control. A man who bows to his feelings can never be a real man. just can't be. A man has to have the kind of control over his feelings that he's going to be an authentic man. If you're going to be an authentic man, you must have control and master those feelings. Let me say a couple things, though. I'm not saying do away with your feelings. I'm not saying ignore your feelings. In fact, we've spent a long time here trying to unpack some stuff. We're trying to unpack those not because we're scared of feelings, not because we're trying to get, but we're trying to handle those. We're trying to use those appropriately. And so as you, number one thing I can say to a guy when he comes to me and says, here's what's going on in my life is, say, well, you know what, I understand. I've been there myself. I've felt what you felt before. And when they can relate to that, they go, oh, okay. And then from there, we're not going to stay there. They came there to, get to, to move on beyond those feelings, right? And so as we look at those feelings, we say, hey, let's not stay back there and we move forward. 
A man can't live by bread alone, as how Jesus said. He lives by the will of God. There's something greater than your feelings. Your greatest enemy. Guys, I tell you, because uh, your greatest enemy, the rest of your life to accept is, is to accept responsibility, to lead courageously, to reject passivity, to turning off the television at night, to getting up, to invest yourself in, in other people's lives, to, direct, uh, to invest directly in your family's life, is going to be saying no to your feelings. Okay? Here's what I'm proud of you, guys, right here. This morning you said no to how you felt, most likely. Some of you are morning people and you got up and you're perky. Most of you weren't. I can tell. I saw you. But many of you said no. And just by that fact that you controlled your emotions, maybe better than anything you've done in terms of hearing any lesson today, this you said, you know what, I'm going to make this conscious effort to move forward. Nothing can bring a man peace but the triumph of principles, is how uh, Emerson said it. Nothing can bring a, a man peace but the triumph of principles. The first Adam abandoned his post of leadership. The second Adam chose to lead courageously. The final and fourth defining uh, definition, uh, difference is this. The first Adam sought a greater reward himself. The second Adam expected a greater reward, God's reward. There's a difference between these two that are drastic, men. The first Adam is trying to satisfy life by himself. It's the old deal. I'll pull my boots up on my own bootstraps. I'll, I'll, I'll make my own life. God helps those who help themselves, which, by the way, is not scriptural. Maybe Texan, but it's not scriptural. God does not help. Is not, the idea behind it is God does not help those who help themselves. That is a, 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 a humanistic idea that we can do it on our own. No, guys, as you, uh, as you walk through this, the one deal is we look for something greater than ourselves. We trust God with our lives. We trust Him. The first Adam thought, no, I can beat that. I can get something better. Proverbs 24, 20 says this, for there will be no future for the evil man. Scripture clearly states that living life on your own has an aspect in which it is evil. Living life on our own, separated from God, there's an aspect of which that is called evil. Another way to say that is uh, that uh, when we separate ourselves from God, when there is a void in our life from God, at that point, there is something that then permeates our heart and life. That is selfishness, that is our own will and desire, and that is oftentimes defined as evil. The second Adam, on the other hand, knew that he had to stay the course. He would get God's best that God's best is never second best. God's best is always first best. Let's look at these passages. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixed our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. For the joy, let's look at that, for the joy set before him. You see, he's looking for something. For the joy that was set before him, for the greater reward that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, he had sat down at the right hand of the Father of God. Look at the next passage, Psalms 27, 13. I would have despaired unless I had believed and that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. See, there's a greater reward. There's nothing you can do on your own that will come in comparison to God's good in your life. There's nothing you can do on your own that you can gain that is greater than God's gain. God's gain and God's goodness and God's things are always so much greater than anything you can do on your own. I knew... Uh, I knew there was gain in this. So in the midst of hard times, rather than go into despair, I knew there would be something good before me in the land of the living. And that's what I kept my eyes on. See, Psalms 27 says that. He says that there's something in the living. There's something there that there's goodness. There's something beyond this. Let's look at the next passage, Hebrews 11, 
24-24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the approach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures of, of, of Egypt, for he... Um, or that he was looking for he was looking for a greater reward. So here's here's this man who had all that that Egypt could give, who had all the luxuries of life, and yet he looked for something greater. There's something beyond that. Let's look at Second Timothy. I fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which uh, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day, and I not only to the one, but also to all who have loved this appearing. You see it there? There's a greater reward. There's something greater. Look for that. Go for that. Let's look at the next passage. 1 Timothy 4.8 For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Let's look at the Hebrews 11.6 And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, that He is reward of those who seek Him. When we seek Him, it is the reward. See, seeking Him, when we do that, there is in and of itself reward in that seeking. As we simply pursue Him, there is reward even in that. We start that with a thing called salvation. When we get saved, there is reward even in that. As we mature in Christ, and every time we mature and trust Him more, as we say no to our feelings, what we want to do, and say yes to God's will and what He wants to do, Every time we do that, there is reward in that. Okay? Some of you are in the midst of unpacking a mess of a life. Okay? And you have to decide whether you're going to live for Christ today. You might be in that midst right now. You may have friends. Right now, some of your lives are kind of looking like they're going to cave in. You may be in some tough situations. You may have a marriage on the rocks. You may have a situation at work in which you don't know if you'll have your job or not. I know what it feels like. I've been there. So a decision has to be made whether you're going to give in to it or not. Whether you're going to be, play the, the, the part of the victim and blame others or just kind of wallow in it in the next few years until something better comes along. Or even worse, maybe you'll decide to seize evil and to do wrong and get your own reward out of it rather than God's reward. You sure have the choice. There is no greater, greater reward. There is no noble life than a life who has surrendered completely to Jesus Christ. There is no, nothing greater there is nothing more. I've been married for 18 years. And to have my wife look into my eyes and to admire me and to love me is unbelievable reward. To have a job that I come to that I know that God has brought me to, that I am here not because you called me here, not because someone I've done a certain thing in, in life, but because God loves me and He wants me here. I have the greatest job. To have children who respect their father, who listen to their father, who at times even try to do what their, their dad asked them to do, is an unbelievable reward. It really is. And so there's so many things that God has led me on that He's done. There is reward every time that you yield your heart and life to Jesus Christ. It is not... Um, there would be some in this world that think that this world is all it's about. There is a world to come. There is a greater thing in this world. And when we live for that, men... You can live for nothing greater. So what is a real man cut up according to a biblical mold? What is he cut out of? What does a real man look like? What's the definition? Here you go. A real man is one who rejects passivity. 
He accepts responsibility. He lives courageously. He expects the greater reward, God's reward. Let me give you one last thought. I stand here not as a person who um, has obtained something on my own. I stand here today as a man who surrendered and let God have his life. As a 16-year-old boy, I came to the point of understanding. I'd grown up religious. I'd grown up in Baptist church. I knew all the information. But at that point in time, I came and said, God, if you are who you say you are, then at 86, there will be greater things happen in my life than at 16 when I get saved. I have no desire to get saved, God, and for you to change my life now and for that to have no profit for me when I'm 86. God, if you can save me now and it's for eternity, then make eternity happen now. Start that in my life. Please do that. So for 30 years now, I've walked with Christ. So I stand before you not as a man who stands on his own, but a man who has surrendered himself. And as I've surrendered myself, I say, here's my greatest gift. My greatest gift is I have no great gifts. But God can use me. And if God can use me, then my testimony is he can use you. You men who have much greater gifts, who have great abilities, who have great knowledge, great information, great strength, he can use you. If he can use me and I have no great strengths, then at that point, he can use you. And he'll use you right where you are. He'll use you in your family. He'll use you in your Bible study class. He'll use you at your work. He'll use you exactly where you are if you become a surrendered man to Jesus Christ. This society is going to hell. There are people in our midst who, don't, who, don't, who do not know the Savior, who no longer know that there is a heaven and a hell. They've said there's something vaguely different out there and we'll try to do our best. But there is a life to live, a life to give. And so what kind of life will you give? What will you do in that with all that? Let me say one other one thing here that kind of finishes up, and then we'll look at a clip, video clip. If I could do anything for you right now, the word uh, uh, courageous means this. It means to be encouraged and to then act upon that. The idea behind the word courage means to breathe courage into another. And so if I could take just a moment, and if I could breathe courage into you, if I could take some time for us to bow our heads, and as I pray over you, just sense that God is just breathing courage for you to do this. If I could do that, I'd be so honored. Father, we thank you for your love for us. This is definitely not our definition. No one took this from our life. No one said, boy, that's what you are, man, Don. You are, you, boy, you're not passive, boy, Don. You take responsibility, God, Don. You're, you're all this stuff. No, this is your definition, God. And this is what you want us to be. And it is impossible for me to live. I look at it and the failures that I've done. I've looked at the, the inability I have, and I realize that I cannot do any of that. So, Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will blow your spirit wherever you, your spirit will blow. Father, I pray that it would blow across these tables. It would blow into discussions of these men. Father, I pray it would blow into their families. Father, I pray it would blow into this church. Father, I pray it would blow through your word. As we read it, it would come alive to us. Father, I pray that we would just sit and say, God, I trust you. I want to live courageously for you. Boy, I am weak. God, would you give me the strength? Father, as I have had a, a father who has walked this way for 71 years of his life, as a nine-year-old boy, he surrendered. Father, I pray that at the end of our life, we would look back and say, what a life worth living. Father, I thank you for how you have given each one of us an ability to uh, be engaged in this world to be involved in this church, to be involved in work. Father, may we reject today passivity. May we do something. Father, may today 
May we uh, take on responsibility. May we say no to things we need to say no to. May we say yes to things we need to say yes to. Father, may we courageously step forward and say, you can count on me. I will accomplish that. I will complete that. Father, in so doing, Father, let us not have eyes on today. Let us not have eyes on a, on a momentary uh, earth, on a mortal life. But let us have a, a, an understanding of the eternal, of the everlasting. And so, Father, if you could just fill us with that spirit, your spirit, if you could just uh, let us be empowered by that, by your spirit today, we'd be so gracious and thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Watch this clip.